Hey there, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast all about living lives that unleash courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and I'm so glad to be here with you for today's episode, How to Apologize. And I'll give you a hint. It's not by saying, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry, but, or just trying to squeeze in as many sorries as possible. I have personally tried all these approaches and they never get me anywhere I really want to go. In this episode, Reverend Gretchen takes us not only into the mechanics of a good apology, but into the ways that our wholehearted attempts at repair truly have the potential to heal us and heal the people we care about and set us all free. So let's get started. I am sure that you will agree that one of the most frustrating parts of life today is how many people are wrong. I mean, so many people are wrong. They're wrong about the vaccine. They're wrong about just like so much about COVID. They're wrong about immigrants. They're wrong about what's needed in schools. They're wrong about racism and climate change. They're wrong about gender. They're definitely wrong about God and church and what it means to live a good life. None of you, of course, which is good because being wrong is awful, right? It's embarrassing and uncomfortable. It makes us feel deficient. Luckily in my household, we have two teenagers, so they help us get used to the feeling. Carrie and I are wrong literally all the time. In her 2011 TED Talk, Katherine Schultz asked us to reflect on the last time that we were wrong. So I invite you to do that now. Think about a time that you were wrong. Just connect in with that experience. Even if you have a helpful teenager around, you probably still, as you recall it, feel your face flush, your stomach tighten, because being wrong really isn't a pleasurable experience, to say the least. Except, like Schultz reminds us, that isn't what it feels like to be wrong. That's what it feels like to realize that you are wrong. Because when you're wrong, but you don't realize it, it feels exactly the same as it feels to be right. Being wrong, but not realizing it, it actually feels great. It feels purposeful and clear and confident, often too confident. That is the thing about humans. Once we get a sense that an idea is right, then we find all sorts of evidence that supports it, not the other way around like you might hope. We get an idea, and then we go find evidence to support that idea. Behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman describes this overconfidence as a failure of imagination. When you cannot imagine an alternative to your belief, then you become convinced that your belief is true. That is overconfidence. Kahneman believes that humans become overconfident because we rely too much on what he calls fast thinking. 
So like, I'm gonna pull up this photo. All right, it's Elaine here. So at this point in the sermon, Gretchen pulls up a photo of a woman's face. Her eyes are wide, her mouth is open, and her expression says something like, what? I cannot believe you just said that. Okay, so as you're looking at this photo, what story are you creating? What do you imagine that this person is about to do? This thinking that you're doing as you're just looking at this photo, it just happens. You don't, you, you don't have to work at it. It just uses patterns and mental modes that is heuristics to make quick automatic assessments. These mental models are useful and efficient and protective. For example, like if you were being chased by a wild beast in prehistoric times, then you wouldn't need to assess if you should run or not, because that just fits the mental model of wild beast run. You just start running. Fast thinking is useful and protective and adaptive, and also it is often wrong. For more reliable thinking, we need to go slow. It's like the thinking that you would need for the math problem 17 times 24. So just now, if you aren't just right now pulling out your phone and instead you try to answer this calculation, your process is likely deliberate and orderly and slow. Slow thinking includes everything from this math problem to parking in a narrow space, unless of course you do either of these all the time for your job, in which case it might be able to be done by fast thinking. Slow thinking is the thinking that isn't automatic. It is conscious, intentional, and careful. And slow thinking is how we think all of our thinking happens. We believe that we make decisions not based on those shortcuts, those mental models and heuristics. We don't think that we base our decisions on feelings or cultural assumptions or our upbringing. Definitely not because it's just what our friends think. We believe that each time we engage in a complex analysis of logic and reasoning, we study, we independently, rationally decide. But actually, the majority of the time, we are fast thinkers, especially right now as we enter this third year of a global pandemic. In this stressful and anxiety-producing, this literally dangerous time, we turn over and over to impulse and automatic thinking to guide our choices, except because we believe that we are slow thinking our way through most things, we are all likely overconfident. And not just in terms of the big headline issues I started with. I just wanted to start there because I think those are, those are each topics uh, where we don't think we are wrong and where people who think exactly the opposite of us just as strongly believe that they are not wrong. And I think it helps to remember that being wrong feels exactly the same as being right. It helps, I mean, when we are trying to navigate our common world together. 
inescapably interdependent as we are. But what I've realized is that for as hard as these big headline disagreements are, what really derails us are the smaller, more interpersonal ways that we are wrong and don't realize it. I mean the ways that we hurt and betray each other. I mean the lies of omission and the failure to show up for each other the failure to be curious about another, the ways we take each other for granted. I mean the conflict avoidance that over time just becomes avoidance and the resentment that we let build. I mean that one dinner party where we all drank too much and the bitterness that just took over and I mean the drinking too much. We are wrong every day in regular, predictable, and often devastating ways. We are wrong with our bodies and our words. We are wrong with our time and our money. We're wrong with our jokes and our silence. Sometimes we are wrong on purpose. Often, as Reverend Jennifer explored a couple Sundays ago, we don't mean it, and yet things break and hurt comes all the same. And what I know about this personal list of wrongs is that it is not so different than the first list I started with, the being wrong about the vaccine or about climate change. That is that we are so quick, especially in the stress of this time and our tendency towards fast thinking. We are so quick to decide that we are not the ones who are wrong. It is the other person who needs to apologize. But if being wrong feels exactly the same as being right, then it is possible that when we talk about repairing relationships, the conversation must start here. The conversation must start with ourselves. This is what Andy Stanley also asserts. He says that the first step of relationship repair is when we make an honest inventory of what we have done wrong. Even if you think you've done nothing wrong, that the other person is entirely at fault, probably especially then. Because in almost all cases, there is something there for you to learn and to accept, to grow through and to repair. It just requires going past our hot takes and past the affirming ways that our friends tell us that we're right, the other person was totally wrong. It takes a deliberate and effortful and slow personal inventory where we grow our imaginations beyond the narrow sense that we know all there is to know, including about ourselves, where we invite in complexity and contradictions and the possibilities that we have acted in ways that don't fit who we think we are. The, the human capacity for self-deceit is profound. Not just because of our fast thinking, but also because we want to protect our self-identity as good people. Shame shields us from seeing the truth and keeps us from revealing that truth to others. 
It's one reason that we need to disband notions of good or bad people and instead acknowledge that all of us are capable of actions that harm and actions that hurt. Not just capable, we all cause harm. We all cause harm, all of us. So in the midst of this slow and deliberate personal inventory, Andy Stanley invites us to just turn to prayer. A prayer that our hearts will be opened to the harm that we have caused. The part that is ours, not more than our part, just ours. A prayer to know the ways that we are wrong, that we have wronged another. Our culture teaches us to do the opposite, that is to shift blame, to save face. We learn to talk about wrong in the passive voice without the first person pronoun. Instead of saying something, I missed the mark, we learn to say, the mark was missed. Now I want to say here again what Elaine said last week, which is that this idea does not apply to all relationships or circumstances. I mean, abuse should never be tolerated or accommodated. I mean only to speak of the regular everyday ways that we fail each other, to invite us to find in these places a simple prayer, something like, universe, open my heart to the ways that I am wrong, or love, guide me to see my part or God help me to accept my peace for a while you might scorn the prayer as soon as you say it that's okay say it anyway if you want to repair what has gone off course say it anyway Trust that at some point in the prayer, something will shift. You will see and feel something in yourself that expands your imagination, even if it's just a willingness to listen differently to the other person, to attempt to see things from their perspective and to enter their world even a little. So over the next few minutes, I want to practice this together. I invite you to call to mind a relationship situation where you have been mostly sure that it's the other person that needs to apologize, the other person that is wrong. It doesn't have to be a giant issue. It could be very small, but it could be. It could be a bigger one. Whatever just surfaces for you in the next couple of minutes. Hey there, it's Elaine again. So let's take some time together here to really dive into the practice that Gretchen's inviting us into. Even if you're feeling some resistance, like, oh, I was hoping to just listen and think about these ideas with this podcast. This is kind of a lot. I invite you to just try to dive in if you can. Just dip your toes in. First, take a moment to just pause in whatever you're doing and take a breath in and out. And bring to mind some conflict in your life where you are pretty sure you're mostly right. It could be something small or something big. And then invite these words to soften you. 
to spark curiosity, to help you see more clearly. Spirit of life, open my heart to the ways that I am wrong and guide me toward the ways of love. Again, Spirit of life, open my heart to the ways that I am wrong and guide me toward the ways of love. And if you want to say these words out loud, you can repeat after me, even if it's just in a whisper just to yourself. Spirit of life, open my heart to the ways that I'm wrong and guide me toward the ways of love. And while we are in this mode of opening up to admitting we're wrong, to apologizing, I'd like to invite you to take in a poem by Sharon Olds entitled, After 37 Years My Mother Apologizes to Me for My Childhood, read by Foothills member Anne Aspen. And then we'll return to part two of Reverend Gretchen's message. After 37 Years, My Mother Apologizes for My Childhood by Sharon Olds When you tilted toward me, arms out like someone trying to walk through a fire. When you swayed toward me, crying out, you were sorry for what you had done to me, your eyes filling with terrible liquid, like balls of mercury from a broken thermometer skidding on the floor. When you quietly screamed, where else could I turn? Who else did I have? The chopped crockery of your hands swinging toward me, the water cracking from your eyes like moisture from stones under heavy pressure. I could not see what I would do with the rest of my life. The sky seemed to be splintering, like a window someone is bursting into or out of. Your tiny face glittered as if with shattered crystal, with true regret, the regret of the body. I could not see what my days would be with you sorry, with you wishing you had not done it. The sky falling around me, its shards glistening in my eyes, your old soft body fallen against me in horror. I took you in my arms. I said, it's all right. Don't cry. It's all right. The air filled with flying glass. I hardly knew what I said or who I would be now that I had forgiven you. So many of us long for the kind of transformative encounter that is described in that poem. It's a sort of transformation that is possible when someone who has hurt us, perhaps with that entirety, like maybe only a mother can, or maybe with ways more particular yet still biting. When a person who has hurt us, comes to us with what Olds calls true regret, the regret of the body. The power of this posture makes possible in us a whole new personhood. As she writes, who will I be now? This exchange of remorse and apology shifts everything. It is the opposite of those bad apologies and the opposite of how many of us learn how to apologize. 
on playgrounds and between siblings, we learned that apology is just a way to avoid punishment or as some sort of magic wand where it could just make all things better. Sometimes I admit I find myself saying to my kids in kind of in service of expediency after they've had some argument or someone, one of them has done some obvious wrong, say you're sorry. And the offender parrots back, sorry. And notice in that no first person pronoun was ever involved. It's not I'm sorry, just sorry. And then we move on. We learned to say sorry in a fast-thinking way. We skip over the slow, deliberate consideration, that inventory that might bring us to the honest and authentic regret, which is a prerequisite for real repair. To arrive at this place, it often takes a lot of those prayers of opening our hearts and it also takes open conversations with those we have hurt to listen for the impact that they experienced. Maybe even more, I think it takes prayers that we will be able to stay put through this process. That is that our commitment to repair, not just the relationship, but repair something in ourselves will not waver regardless of whatever misery arrives when our prayer to know our part is answered. It is those, all those feelings, those horrible feelings of knowing that you are wrong, except they're a real human consequence. As soon as we have seen what we have done, we want to unsee it. We want to explain and justify and minimize and forget. So we need that steadfast commitment to repair to help us keep seeing, keep feeling, and keep saying, yes, this, this was my part. I was wrong. Because only in this acknowledgement and its pain will we find the resolve to never repeat the same action in the future, which is the point. There is no repair while the harm continues. There is no repair without the resolve for the harm to stop which does not mean a sudden burst of perfection where no harm ever happens again. There are no good people, no bad people. We all cause harm. So another break is a part of the deal in any relationship. But the idea must be that this thing we have done, we are determined to stop doing. We are determined to learn and determined to change, change ourselves, change our habits, change our understanding. I was speaking a couple weeks ago with Foothills member and restorative justice expert Terry Ashley earlier this month about apologizing and repairing relationships. Terry offered me a four-part formula that she teaches that is grounded in commitment to change and repair, a four-part formula for apologizing. So I want to share that with you. It starts with the simple but meaningful phrase, I am sorry that I... And then you just fill in the blank. 
Now, both parts of this first phrase are really important. Sometimes we can get really stuck in articulating our regret, but never actually apologize. So if you start with, I am sorry that I, then you ensure you don't skip over the apology in your apology. And then the that, I am sorry that I, allows you to say how you have been wrong. That is the harm you've caused. Shaped by that prayer to know your part and then through deep listening to the other. An apology begins with the first person, but it is always focused towards the second. This out loud acknowledgement of the harm you have caused to the person who experienced the harm is critical to repair as it releases that internal regret into something external and therefore accountable. Okay, so that's just step one. I am sorry that I, you fill in the blank. Step two, it was wrong or hurtful because, and then you describe the impact. Now it's possible that you have a sense of the harm but then through the process of apologizing, you learn more. And then you expand and amend the apology accordingly. It's an iterative process, a dialogue where you share your growing understanding of why it was harmful. In this step, be careful to avoid explanations or at least keep them to a minimum. Explanations are first person and apologies are focused on the second. Okay. So again, the first was, I am sorry that I. Second, it was wrong or hurtful because. And then the third, the third step, next time I will. And then you say the change you are determined to make. That is the way that you will commit to refraining from the harm in the future. And also what you're doing to hold yourself accountable. Change is hardly ever about the individual. After all, change happens in context, in relationship, in systems. And so also, what is the systemic way that you are committed to change? So one, I am sorry that I. Two, it was wrong or hurtful because. And three, next time I will brings us to four. Finally, you acknowledge, I'd like your forgiveness. And then you ask, what can I do to make things right? And then you listen. It is not always possible to make things back the way they were before the break, to, to repair in exactly the sense of putting things exactly all in the right pieces. Often the break changes us. But as one Jewish teaching acknowledges, the work of repair has its own intrinsic purposes, regardless of whether or not the repair can ever be accomplished. It is the effort and the resulting change of heart that matters. So that's it. I am sorry that I it was wrong or hurtful because next time I will. I'd like your forgiveness. What can I do to make things right?
I have always imagined in that poem from Sharon Olds that although she describes it, she talks about it as a single encounter, the process that she's describing would have happened over a long period of time, a slow period, where at the end she finds herself at this thing called forgiveness. Forgiveness is complicated especially for those of us who grew up with a Christian notion of infinite forgiveness. It's a kind of model that makes forgiveness into fast thinking. It is automatic and assumed. But real repair is slow, deliberate, and intentional. The apology opens us up and makes the repair possible, but it isn't in and of itself repair. In our conversation, Terry offered an incredibly freeing invitation, which was, she said, just don't worry about forgiveness. Instead, spend your time focused on the actual work of repair. In her observations, we can get hung up on this idea of forgiveness, which actually asks a lot of work of the one harmed, when really the work needs to fall on the person who was wrong to follow through, to change, and to make amends however possible. There are a million ways to make a bad apology. I mean, if you don't believe me, go to that Sorry Watch site, and or they're also on Twitter. There's so many incredible examples of apologies that are not apologies. You can see how these apologies came from the fast-thinking place. The place of defensiveness and self-protection, reactivity, and an overwhelming confidence that they are actually still right, not wrong. But if our intention is actually to repair the relationship, we can only go slow. We must do the hard work that starts with the first person and then stays focused on the second. We have to enlarge our imaginations beyond our own assumptions and our own conclusions, our own interests. We have to be willing to say with all sincerity and understanding, I am so sorry. And there in a flash, the sky splinters and everything changes. And we wonder, what will we do for the rest of our lives now that we are free to begin again? May it be so. An amen. What will we do with the rest of our lives now that we are free to begin again? What a liberating place we might find ourselves if we dare to take the plunge and own our part in what's not right. A prayer for us as we end our time together. May we each find the courage to allow ourselves to be guided toward that truth inside of us, that truth about what needs to be repaired. And may we find the courage to start moving toward it, that place of such tenderness and vulnerability. And oh, it may be so hard to look at that we have to squint and tolerate our stomach turning but even then, may we let ourselves be guided toward the apology that restores. Even if the pieces can never be placed back together again in just the same way, may we be brave enough and hopeful enough to say, 
I am sorry that I, it was wrong or hurtful because next time I will. And finally ask, what can I do to make things right? And just maybe we will find our relationship knitting itself together in a new and newly beautiful way. Thank you so much for making the time to join us for this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. If you have a moment, it would mean so much to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people discover the show when they're typing keywords into Google and they're trying to find just the right something that might touch their lives in a meaningful way. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here week after week, please send them a link and spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. We're so glad you joined us.